turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 John. We will be in 1 John chapter 4 this morning. God is holy. There is no sin in Him. He is absolutely pure and righteous. Both in Isaiah and Revelation, we see glimpses around the throne of God. The resounding song before Him is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His holiness demands holiness of His people. It demands holiness for all in His presence. Psalm 5.4 says, Evil may not dwell with God. It is His holiness that makes His wrath absolutely perfect and just. It is His holiness that makes His anger pure. It is His holiness that demands a response to sin. A measured response. An appropriate response. So we read of God's wrath over 580 times in the Old Testament. We read passages such as Ezekiel 7, verses 8 and 9. says, Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you. And spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. And I will punish you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways. While your abominations are in your midst, then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes well, we read the words of Nahum, chapter 1, verses 2 through 6, God's message to Nineveh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord and, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Or we hear the words of Jeremiah 10.10, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. 
And then we have to come to grips with the truth that we heard from Pastor Matt. That Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we read in Ephesians 5.6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Or in James 4.4, we hear, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world has made himself an enemy of God. Romans 2.5, Paul writes, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. We read the vision of the Apostle John. He looks and he beholds Christ coming in the clouds. He describes this warring, victorious Savior. He writes, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. We read in John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I want you to hear a segment from perhaps one of the most well-known sermons ever spoken on the grounds of our United States. By Jonathan Edwards. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty. And there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back and that they are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and the wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury, and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the strongest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent. 
and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Why do we start here? Why do we begin with such a sobering and somber overview of God's holy wrath when we're celebrating love? I I, I believe that we can struggle to fully grasp God's love. I, I was just struck this, this week in my study as I, as I looked and considered our passage this morning. I was struck with the reality that, that so often we think about the love of God and we come and we, we appreciate it. But we don't fully grasp it. We can go even so far to think that we deserve God's love. So that I would stand up here and say, God loves you. And you, in the back of your mind, are thinking, of course he does. (laughs) Why would he not? I mean, look at me. But the testimony of Scripture is this, is that, that none of us deserve God's love. None of us have earned God's love. None of us have merited God's love. That's what makes God's love amazing. That's what, that's what makes us gather and sing and worship Him and exalt His name and give praise to Him for His steadfast love endures forever because we know that we don't deserve it. We deserve wrath. We deserve the anger of a holy God. We deserve punishment and damnation. Yet God sent Jesus to save sinners from His holy, just wrath see it is it is the wrath of god that is necessary it's a necessary backdrop that we need to have we look and we read of the love of god we need to have the backdrop of god's wrath so that we better understand god's love for us let's read his word in first john chapter four in in this passage verses seven through twelve of chapter four John is calling us to love one another. He's he's saying that if if God's love is in us, if we are truly God's people, we will love one another. And we will do so as God has loved us. And the supreme example of this, he's given in verse 9 and 10, which is our text this morning, 1 John 4, 9 through 10. I want you to hear how he describes the love of God. He says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Listen, we, we were just a few days out from Christmas. It'll be here before you know it. And it is so easy to get caught up in 
and all the, the hustle and the bustle and the, the, the things that need to be done, the busyness, the shopping. This year it tends to be online, right? We get caught up in all of that. And we can lose sight of what we are really doing, what we are really celebrating. And so I, I don't want us to do that. I don't want us to get so focused on everything going on, the cir- circumstances, the situation, the anticipation of what we're doing with families and friends over Christmas, that we lose sight of the Savior who came to save us at Christmas. I don't want us to lose sight of Him. I don't want us to lose sight of His great love. And so my prayer this week has been this, is that through this time when we study and we look at His Word in 1 John 4, that we would just be overwhelmed by the love of God. A love that we did not deserve, but a love that many of us have received and known and experienced. And so we look at this text. I just want us to look at three very simple words this morning. Three very simple words that he says that are very important for us to realize and remember and understand when we think about God's love. The first one is manifest. The second one is live. And the third one is propitiation. That we want to understand those three words and what they mean to us. So let's look at the first one in verse 9. Verse 9, John writes, In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. Now, we probably know what manifest means. Manifest simply means to reveal or to make known, to show, to make clear. Something that once was not known is now apparent. It is brought out into the open. And he says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. The the incarnation of Christ, the coming of Christ, is how God has shown his love for us. We're reminded here of a simple truth that love is active. It isn't something that someone just says, I love you, that then does not show it. No, the the love of God is active. It was not merely told in word, but it was shown in sending. And we're reminded here that our God is a revealing and a sending God. We think about the love of God, it reminds us he is a revealing and a sending God. So that Francis Schaeffer writes the, the book that God, he is there and he is not silent. God is not one that that we sit back and we think about and we go, wow, he could be there. He may exist. He's not one that we speculate and go, well, he he may exist. I just, unfortunately, I, I can't know anything about him. No, God is a revealing God. He has revealed himself to us. He has made himself known. He has made himself known through creation. It says that his divine power, his divine attributes have been made known through creation. When we think about his revelation, though, and we think about general revelation, that's known as general revelation, that God has made himself known generally to all people, that he does indeed exist. We understand that that's not enough, though. Herman Babink, in his book, The Wondrous Works of God, says, When, therefore, we review the whole terrain of general revelation, we discover on the one hand that it has been of great value and that it has borne rich fruits. And on the other, that mankind has not found God by its light. That we look and we see creation, we see that God has indeed revealed himself. He has revealed that he does exist. But it comes up lacking. Bavik even goes so far as to say that if, if you only had general revelation, it might even be frustrating because you would see that God exists and you might not know, you would not know how to be in relationship with him. And so thanks be to God that he has not only revealed himself through creation, he has revealed himself through the word. He's revealed himself through the word made flesh in John 1.14. That Christ 
came and dwelt among us. Christ, the one who was the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, according to Hebrews 1.3. So he has revealed him through the word made flesh. He has revealed us, revealed himself to us through the spoken, written word. That according to Paul in 2 Timothy 3.15, makes us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. God is a revealing God. He has made himself known. But why? Why? Why has he made himself known? Why does he send Christ? Why does he not stop at just declaring his existence in, revela- in, in general revelation in the world? But instead, why does he go the extra measure to reveal himself spe- specifically through the word made flesh and through the spoken written word? Why does he do that? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. It says that he sent Jesus to show his love. John writes that, that in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world. That is it. That is a demonstration of God's great love for us. Listen, there's an important distinction here. God does not love us because Jesus came into the world. He does not love us because he came and he found a bunch of good people down here. He does not love us even because Jesus died. No. Jesus died because God loves us. Jesus came because God loves us. See, God's love was that that took initiative, which initiated the incarnation. It was not the result of the incarnation. He didn't send Jesus down on some research assignment to say, hey, go see if there are lovable people down there. No, he knew that we were unlovable. He knew that we were enemies of his. We knew, he knew that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. He knew that we were rebels. He knew that we deserved his wrath. And because he knew that, and yet he loved us, he sent Christ. He sent. He is ascending God. So the sending of Christ to live and to die was the ultimate manifestation of God's love. So we did not just hear and read of God's love. No, we saw God's love lived out. We saw God's love lived out as he healed the lame, gave sight to the blind, dined with sinners, calmed the storm, fed the multitudes, suffered shame and scorn, and died on the cross. We saw and beheld the love of God manifest among us. We are witnesses to it. The second word in verse 9 that's important for us this morning is live. Live. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Have you thought about why was it such an incredible manifestation of God's love for Jesus to come? Why, why is that? That God says, if you want to see my love, let me show you my love. I'm going to display it. I'm going to make it apparent to you. And the way I'm going to make it apparent to you is I'm sending my only son. Why is that such a supreme and incredible manifestation of the love of God? 
It's, it's because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We weren't just injured. We weren't just struggling. Ephesians, Colossians say we were dead. We were cold, lifeless, helpless corpses with no breath in our souls. We were dead. And he sends Christ, why? So that we might live through him. So that we might have life. Colossians 2, 13 to 14, Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We live through Jesus because he is the life. That's John 14, 6. In Acts 3, 15, we live through Jesus because he is the author of life. In John 1, 4, we live through Jesus because he is the life that gives light to all men. It is in Christ and in Christ alone that we live and have life. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Christ comes as a manifestation, as the manifestation of God's love for us, so that we might live in Him. It is in Christ that we have life. See, the world is going to say that life is lived to the full when your weekends are full of your pleasure. When you can do what you want to do. When you can sit on your back porch and kick your feet up around the fire. When you can relax and have it like you want it. The world says that life is lived when you are really living and you have all the toys that you want. You have all the stuff that your heart could desire. And you accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. The world says that life is lived when you're happy. Life is lived... When you're successful, you determine even what life is. That's when life is lived. But the testimony of Scripture is that life is in Christ alone. And you may fill yourself with those temporary things that are fleeting, those things that will burn, those things that will, that will not last and will disappoint, those things that will come up lacking and providing true and genuine enduring hope. But that is not life. Life is in Christ. The truth is that it is in Him and Him alone. The truth is that according to Romans 6, 4, He gives us newness of life. Newness of life. In John 6, verse 35, we read that Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The satisfaction of life is in Christ. He is the only one that satisfies. Stuff will not satisfy. Knowledge will not satisfy. Money will not satisfy. Your family will not satisfy. Your job will not satisfy. Christ and Christ alone will satisfy the hunger and thirst that you have. John 10.10. In life, 
or in Christ is life that is abundant. It's where John, Jesus says that the, the thief comes to, to steal and to kill and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly, have it to the fullest extent. It is abundant life that is found in Christ. And to have life in Christ. We know according to John 3.16 and elsewhere like 1 John 5.11 and 12. That means eternal life. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We have life in Christ. We have life as a result of God's love for us. Listen, the the holy God who pours out his awful wrath on sinners knew that the only way to bring life and salvation to sinners was the sending of his son, the Savior. That is why we have life. So the question would be, do you know life in Christ? Do you understand the abundant satisfied eternal life that is in Christ and Christ alone not in the ways of the world not in the things of the world but in Christ and in Christ alone has God brought life to your dead heart we live through him the third word I want us to look at this morning is in verse 10 it's the word propitiation the word propitiation the the word that reminds us that the birth and the death of Jesus are inseparable It reminds us that God manifests his love for us in sending Christ. He demonstrates his love for us in Christ dying. The cross and the cradle are inseparable. They are always together that the baby lying in a manger came to be the Savior dying on the cross. We see that and we think about the fact that God manifests his love by sending his son. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I think it's important that he says, in this is love, not that we have loved God. Love is not defined by our love for him. That's why we don't gather and just sing words declaring how great our love is for him. Oh God, we love you, we love you, we love you. Is it wrong to say that? No. It's not wrong to say we love God. It's not wrong to sing that. But we don't magnify that. No, we magnify and we worship God's love for us. That is the full and the beautiful and the holy and the pure definition of genuine love. It's his love for us. So we have to ask the question because this isn't a word that we use that often, is it, right? Propitiation. What is propitiation? What is that? How how many of you have used that in the past week? Probably none of us, right? Outside of study, I didn't have any general conversation. I don't that I can recall this week outside of sermon prep and discussion of the sermon where I brought up the word propitiation. So what is it? It's a big word. And it simply means that it refers to a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. A sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. Some of your translations may say an atoning sacrifice. It is a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. It is the moment in which Jesus steps in front of and turned away the raging, relentless, overwhelming flood of God's wrath poured out on sin that Edwards talks about. It's the moment in which Christ steps in front of that holy arrow that Christ had pulled back and bent his bow toward 
hurling at you and I in his wrath. And in that moment, Christ steps in front of that arrow to turn away the wrath of God. Now listen, this is, this is an area where words are important. And the precision of words are important. Because there are some, and some of your translations may do this, some of the older translations, there was a, a time several years back where there was some debate as to what does the meaning of this word really, or what does this word really mean? And some would say, well, actually, it's not propitiation. It actually should be translated as expiation. Now, this is, I don't want to lose you in theology here. But I want to just clarify something that is important for us to understand. We think about Christ's work and the depth of his love. See, expiation would refer to the covering or the cleansing of our sins, the removal of our sins. That's what expiation refers to. You you already heard, I, I said propitiation is the sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God, the atoning sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. And so some would say, no, we don't want to talk about propitiation because that talks about God the Father acting in wrath towards sinners. And so we don't want to think about God's wrath. It's just that on the cross, our, our sin was dealt with, it was covered, it was cleansed, it was removed. Well, listen, that's true. That, that is true, that on the cross, Jesus' blood covers and cleanses. His sacrifice on the cross was much more than this, though. It was more than just expiation. Because as we read and we see all throughout the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, that the wrath of God is a very real thing. It is a reality. There is a, a personal interaction between God and his creation in which his creation transgresses and sins against him. And he is a holy and a just and a righteous God. And his holy and just and righteous response to that sin against him is wrath and punishment towards those who have transgressed and rebelled. God's wrath is real. It's not some concept. It's not something that is old and gone and has been and is not still here. We read in Romans 2 where it says that all those outside of Christ are daily storing up wrath upon them. We read in John 3 that if we are not in Christ, then God's wrath remains upon you. God's wrath is real. So we don't merely need to be cleansed from our sin. Do we need to be cleansed from our sin? Yes, absolutely. But that's not all we need. We also need to be saved from the punishment of our sin. We need to be saved from the wrath of God. So to ignore the wrath of God is to rob the love of God of its great costs and sacrifices. Jesus died to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what he says here. He says that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The the satisfaction for our sins. So listen, on the cross, sin was expiated and God was propitiated. Sin was cleansed and removed. God's wrath was turned away. And so it is absolutely right to translate this and to see this as a big word that we don't use that often. That God sent his son to be the propitiation of of our sins, for our sins. Christ turned away, appeased, averted the wrath of the Father poured out on sinners. If you 
try to remove that, if you try to say that wasn't necessary, then why was the cross required? If there were no punishment for sins, why would Jesus die? If God would not punish and pour out his wrath on sin, why was it necessary? What's the big deal? But God does indeed punish sin. And because God punishes sin, this baby lying in a manger that we celebrate this Christmas season was the man dying on the cross and rising from the grave so that we might know the love of God for us. Jesus died to be the propitiation for our sins. We, we read in Romans 3, 23 to 25, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God has poured out or God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. We read in Hebrews 2.17, that Jesus came as a man to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Earlier in 1 John, John declared in 2 verse 2, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He is the propitiation for our sins. Listen, the, the greatness of God's love is seen in the price that he paid to save sinners. It's one thing to say God loves you. It's another thing to understand that when you hear that God loves you, it means that He averted the very wrath of God to cleanse you from your sins. The one who is absolutely holy and omnipotent and righteous died for you, for your sins, for my sins. John Stott said, God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it his own self in his own son when he took our place and died for us. Do you hear that? God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own self in his own son when he took our place and died for us. Oh, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. <laughs> the, the love of God is absolutely astounding. I, hear, I want you to hear another portion from Edward's sermon. Edward's sermon gets a, a bad rap that it's just talking about God's wrath and it's just this hellfire and brimstone scaring you into heaven. But he's talking about God's mercy. He's talking about you deserve God's wrath. You are as a spider dangled over a fire. And he talks about that the only thing holding you out of the fire, the only reason you don't drop into the fire is God's good pleasure to relent and to hold you. The only reason that God doesn't pour forth those floods, he said, did you catch it in the first thing I read? It was according to his pleasure that he's not unleashing the floods of the fury of his wrath. It's God's mercy. Now, I want you to hear as Edwards wraps up his sermon, I want you to hear what he says. He says, and now you have an extraordinary opportunity 
A day where in Christ is thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. A day wherein many are flocking to Him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, the west, the north, the south. Many that are very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to Him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in His own blood and rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Edward says, listen, there are people everywhere who are in that state. Many of us, most of us in here, were in that state as objects of God's wrath, but we have trusted Christ and He has saved us. We have been made alive together with Christ. He is our propitiation. He has appeased and averted the wrath of God Almighty so that we stand and we rejoice in His great love. We sing of His love that endures forever. We sing of how deep the Father's love for us. We sing of those things. But there are some sitting amongst us. There are some that in, a, in another hour will be sitting in these seats. There are some that will be watching on Facebook and YouTube. There are some who live down the street from you in your very house. That all those passages we read at the beginning are way too real. All those passages ring true. And they are under the wrath of God. They need to hear. They need to hear the words of John. If I can find it. I'll get close enough. They need to hear that in Christ we have eternal life. But if we do not have eternal life in Christ, the wrath of God is upon them. There are Muslims that we just heard about in the video. They're doing so much to earn God's favor. But the wrath of God is upon them. There are people everywhere who are passionate about religion. But the wrath of God remains upon them. Why? Because it is only in Christ that His wrath is averted. Because Christ is our propitiation. So I want you to hear the beginning of 1 John. For John writes, That which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, with the Son, Jesus Christ. Listen, John starts by writing, the one that we have seen, the one that we have heard, the one that we have touched, that was made manifest to us. Christ came and dwelt among us. The Son of God dwells among us lives among us, dies before us, among us. 
And John says, we proclaim him. Why? So that you might have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, with the Son, Jesus Christ. Listen, you need to know today that fellowship with God and his people only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It does not come through coming to church. It comes through faith in Christ and Christ alone. So I would call you that faith. And those of us in here who are believers, oh, we rejoice in the God of our salvation. We rejoice that we're not trying to strive and earn and merit and figure out and learn about what we can do to be saved. No, we rejoice that God so loved us that he sent his one and only son. That the manifestation of his love was the sending of Christ. And that love is fully defined in the sacrifice of Christ that atoned for our sins. We rejoice in that. And so I pray, believer, that today you would think deeply on the love of God poured out for you and for me. And unbeliever, I pray that you would turn to him for salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we, we bow before you, the holy, holy, holy God. The one who created all things, who is Lord of all things. The one who rules over all things. The one who will punish sin. And God, most of us in here today, God, we bow as those who know your love and we know the sacrifice you've made and we rest in your love, we rest in your grace, we are alive in Christ and we rejoice in that. God, let us not get distracted by all the things of the world, the cares of the world, the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh. But God, let us be overwhelmed by your love today. God, I pray for our neighbors, our loved ones who don't know you, our friends. God, I pray that you would do a great work in their life. Open their eyes to see and behold the fury of your wrath that rests upon those who are not in Christ. And God, I pray that you would bring new life to them, that they might be saved and know you and trust you today. God, would you please do a work of salvation among us? And we ask these things in the name of Christ, our loving Lord. Amen.